0: Somerset Storyfest would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Yugamber people, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. Welcome to Bookmarked by Storyfest, a literary podcast for curious kids and adults, co-hosted each week by a revolving door of kid book lovers. This episode was recorded live at the 2021 Somerset Storyfest. Please be advised this podcast episode discusses issues that may cause distress to some listeners and includes topics of domestic abuse and family violence. It is advised that young people listen with an adult present. Hi, it's Grant Peel here, your regular host for the Bookmarked by Storyfest podcast. I'm sorry, but I can't be joining you for this first episode with Jess Hill and Suzanne Gervais. Instead, this podcast will be hosted by our Festival Director and CEO of StoryFest, Andrea Lewis.
1: Welcome to the first episode of the Bookmarked by StoryFest podcast. We've decided to launch the podcast with this episode as it coincides with Domestic and Family Violence Prevention Month as well as with the airing of Jess Hill's landmark three-part series, See What You Made Me Do, which premiered on SBS for the first time last night. My name is Andrea Lewis. I am the CEO of Somerset Storyfest, and I'm filling in today for our regular host, uh, Grant Peel. Today I'm joined with Jess Hill and Suzanne Gervais. Jess is an investigative journalist who's been writing about domestic violence since 2014. Prior to this, as a producer for the ABC Radio, a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail, her reporting on domestic violence has won her several awards, including two Walkley Awards. Suzanne Gervais, OAM, also joins us here today, a multi-award winning author. You'll find Suzanne speaking to thousands of young people about no bullying. As well, we've been able to welcome Suzanne to launch her latest book, Heroes of the Secret Underground, at this year's festival. This book discusses issues of the Holocaust. I have to say it's one of the most age-appropriate discussions on this very difficult topic. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, look, um, you know, obviously I've had the opportunity um, to read both of your your books. So I kind of have put together my own gig on this. Um, So I'm hoping that you're going to go with me on that. Um, I'll start with you, Suzanne. Suzanne. Your latest book, Heroes of the Secret Underground, Um, obviously not yet out. We've been extremely fortunate here at Storyfest to get an early edition. Um, An amazing read. And I think that what got me the most was how appropriate it was to tell a really difficult story but age-appropriate for the the audience.
2: Well, look, I'm passionate about um, bringing social justice, making young people advocates for a different future. The Holocaust is a terribly confronting topic and as far as I'm concerned, presenting children with complete evil it has a counterproductive effect. Absolutely. So look, presenting it through story and through my family, they're able to become part of that journey. They're on that thrilling journey through Budapest, facing bombs and saving lives and actually learning so much about man's capacity for both violence and heroism. And by using the Holocaust, it is very different to other stories using that as a tapestry because I want them to become critical thinkers about how would they act, how would they behave? What do they learn from it? Rather than being overwhelmed by a history that has no relevance to them. Absolutely.
1: Look, I want to share with you something. Um, you very kindly did a, um, a launch of your book with our junior wordsmiths and I wanted to share something with you and I guess that for me this is ex- one of the very real reasons that I do what I do and I'm sure it's probably your book. This is from one of our families that um, the children attended breakfast this morning. I just wanted to say how much we as a family personally appreciate the opportunity to take part in the Suzanne Gervais Heroes of the Underground Book launch. Being Jewish and granddaughters of Holocaust survivors who were lucky to have fled from Berlin to Australia in 1939, our daughters seldom find an opportunity to have a conversation around an important part of their family's history. You know, that, that to me just shows that there is a need and a want out there in our community. That next generation. People are looking for information to share with their families. And so, your book, I think, just fits really well into that age group for those children.
2: Well, see, one of the things is about, you know, my parents who obviously went through the Holocaust is this they come and they want to create a new future in Australia, and there is silence. They want to protect us, and protecting us through. Lack of knowledge creates fear and confusion and lack of identity and this is a way to open that discussion not only for people who have gone through the holocaust but you know world you know the incredible atrocities and violence throughout the world. Kids can jump into this and Place themselves in their situation in a safe way. Absolutely,
1: I think that's really important. And that, and as I said earlier, I think that that's what makes this book so special is that you've told it very, very respectfully and very age appropriate. Because I think that that's that's uh, really important for that age group. Um, can I move on to Jess? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So look, your book obviously is you know when we were we had asked you to be here twelve months ago for us, and um, at the time when we had um, already locked you in for our literary lunch, we had the atrocity of uh, Hannah Clark mm. and her young family that were were killed. Um, the last twelve months have just I mean if it could get any more horrific, I think that it has. Um, it is a book that. Um, from me personally, I've I've connected with. Um, it was in times absolutely shocking. Um, how difficult is it to write a book like this and to and to separate the stories that you're trying to tell, about keeping yourself sane? Ah, hmm.
3: keeping myself sane. I'm not sure I did that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's you know people talk about needing to like when when you watch like a. Um, a crime thriller or something like really gory and you see the sort of violence committed against people that if you were to see in real life would like traumatise you for life but we watch it sort of like on almost on a daily basis on television because we can abstract it, you know, we, we can, we don't imagine or even think of that that would happen to someone that we know or love. Um, and I guess for me some of the power I think that ends up being in the writing is um, is that I wasn't able to abstract it. Mm. Um, that re- that required a, an enormous amount of um, personal pain <laughs> to, yes. to put it together. But uh, and and I found myself isolating myself from from friends and family. Um, I found myself almost self replicating some of the conditions that that um, that victims are subjected to.
2: Yeah
3: almost to try to get inside the experience, even just like a slight percentage of it. Um, and so that's not like what I recommend to writers <laughs> who are <laughs> writing about this subject matter, but I feel like it was about three to four years of my life that um, I would never do again, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. And, and I think that putting, putting these stories into visceral detail... While, as my partner so like lovingly and helpfully advised me um, to care for the reader, um so much in the same way that you're talking about Suzanne with like you know, um, making it age appropriate or getting the the kids to feel like they're in it, they're not being overwhelmed by something that's irrelevant. Yep. you know, really going, what does the reader need to know at this stage of the book? This story can get as horrible as you want. We can go into the most gory details, but what is enough of the details? that's going to convey what's happened um, and what are some of the details that we wouldn't even think of as being horrific but are actually just really moving? What are some of the tender details in there that can bring us back to the humanity of the people who've been involved and not just what they've been subjected to? So there was a lot of thinking that went into it to make it so, I really wanted to propel people page after page so that and not Some people have found that. Other people have found, like, oh, my God, I have to put it down for, like, two months before I can pick it up again. Some people have said they read it in three days. And I'm like, how dare you? It took me ages to write that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really about propelling them over the next page, over the next chapter, making them feel cared for, making them feel like actually there is a point to reading all this. I'm not just wading through pain for no good reason. This is is moving towards something.
1: Yeah. Look, it's... um you know, you did a lot of your research, I think, here on the Gold Coast. Um, I know in the book you mentioned Di McLeod from the McLeod Refuge, uh, Kathleen Simpson, um, which are outstanding women in our community. Um, did you... Was primarily a lot of your research on the Gold Coast?
3: No, I came up here specifically to look at the Southport Specialist Domestic Violence Court and I came up here with the intent, um, mission, to find out why there were so many intervention orders being placed by men against women. So it was for, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a chapter on when, when when women use violence in relationships Absolutely. or abuse. And that statistic, 25% of these orders at a specialist domestic violence court, not at some sort of boondoggle court where they were getting it wrong or, you know, I was like, well, i got to get to the bottom of that. What's going on there? And so I thought, you know, I'm going to just demolish all of my presumptions about the gendered nature of this violence and maybe we just haven't picked up on an increase in women's violence. I don't know. I'll just go and find out. And so I came up here. I, like, walked up and down the rows of, law, like, criminal lawyers outside the courts and was asking them, you know, these people who are not feminists, like, and, <laughs> and, and, are, and are very down and dirty criminal lawyers, like, what's the difference when you get a, a, an intervention order out against a woman? And this one guy, Dave Garrett, who I talk about in the book, he's like, look... Most of the women who are getting these orders out against them, they've committed one act, you know, and um, and most of the guys, it's a it's a sustained pattern of abuse. When they breach, the women most commonly breach the order by emailing or contacting when the when the order says that they're not allowed to. When the guys breach, it's more often that it's violent, yes, you know, and and then doing further research into sti- like into studies that have been done interstate, it was like there's also a percentage of these orders that are being taken out by perpetrators when the women take orders out against them to make it look like, well, it takes two to tango, you know, we were both as bad as each other. Um, And, you know, there's a a lot of violence that occurs in these relationships that can happen in violent resistance or in self-defence where the woman has been subjected to long-term abuse, you know. The irony of being here in Queens at Southport at the court and investigating women's use of violence is the third day that I was at Southport court and I was ready to go and see the police and I set up to, s- to go and meet everyone at Gold Coast Police and I got an email saying all of our cops have been called out to a domestic incident. And I thought, oh, that's really bad. Something's really bad's happened. and I st- And I was like searching Twitter, searching the news and then the news about Teresa Bradford being murdered came mm. through. And that happened about... It was about 45 minutes from Southport. She'd been granted bail. Uh, not she'd been granted bail. Her her ex-partner, David, had been granted bail by Southport Court. And when that news came through, the mood at the court was so grim and I just felt like... I just jumped in my hire car and I was like, I've got to get out there, I've got to get to where this happened. I don't know why, I don't know what I thought I'd find. Um, and I was just in the car kicking myself crying just going you're up here investigating women's violence another woman has been murdered you know let's look at like I mean it's I don't want to footnote male victims as though they don't matter they do matter but the fact is when it comes to this pointy end and homicide it's very rare for a male victim to be killed by a female perpetrator when they're killed. They're usually killed by women in self-defence or as an act of violent resistance because they feel like yep. they'll never be safe until that yep. person is dead. And, um, and yeah, so the Gold Coast experience for me <laughs> was really intense but uh, that's so instructional um, and I only wish I'd been able to spend much more time all around Australia but I had a born baby as i was writing this so that didn't (laughs) oh my
1: goodness so look that that kind of brings up the point and i know that you've talked about it in the book and um i listened to the great uh, podcast mama mia and the girls after the uh, march for justice the other day they were they were having that conversation um and one of the points that they made um was that uh you know there are men out there that that are subjected to violence However, the statistics around those that actually fear for their life mm. are very, very low. Mm. Whereas for a female, majority of the females that are subject to, to violence, they actually fear for their life. Mm. Um, you know, it's a really big turning point there.
3: Yeah. And not just that, you know, it's that when we talk about gender inequality being sort of central to this – um, we're also talking about sort of the systemic oppression, not just of, of women, um, but systemic oppression of um, gay people, you know, who find it very hard to find, to get attention and help when they're experiencing abuse. Like We talk about gendered violence. We're actually talking about patriarchal violence yeah. and, and where white male heterosexual is the norm and everyone else is the other. Um, and the white male heterosexual may not always live a privileged life, in inverted commas, they may be underprivileged, they may have all sorts of pain and awfulness that they go through. But as far as the system sees them, the justice system sees them as the norm. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it's much easier to believe that most women lie about rape than it is to believe that your friend might be a rapist. And and that's what women face and and people in same-sex relationships face when they go into the justice system is this culture of disbelief, a culture of victim-blaming. So this it's they get trapped and um, perpetrated against by an individual or, or by a family and then that oppression continues often through the systems that are supposed to protect them. And that's what we talk about when we talk about gendered violence, not just individuals, it's a whole system. It's a whole
1: system, yeah. Uh,
3: you've both become advocates, um, you know, voices for uh,
1: on behalf of others how do you How do you take that? You know, do you ex- you accept that? You know um, you're thrown into that sort of limelight uh, being that person, uh, speaking on behalf of others. I remember Magda Sibansky with the whole uh, marriage equality. she she sort of
2: was thrust into that spotlight too. How do you feel about that, Suzanne? I'm completely committed to it. I believe kids are smart and amazing, but they don't have experience, and when they face challenges, We get this huge youth male suicide in particular. We get mental breakdown. It's not good enough. And kids don't have the experience to voice their inner emotions and concerns. So, look, writing story for young people is such a privilege because they're looking for values. They're looking for identity. And I, my books travel with them. And when a kid loves your book... They'll read it 10 times, 20 times. The characters will become their friends to travel with them on the rocky road of life and I want to be there. I'm the child of refugees and I was voiceless. My parents adored their children. I was voiceless and alone and afraid. And, you know, I just had a beautiful session at Somerset and I asked the kids how they feel and... The number of kids who say that they feel sad inside, they Mm. feel isolated, well, you know what, I want to travel with them. It's my privilege and I think my duty. And that's exactly why I write, the only reason I write. And recently, uh, my doctor, who I... Absolutely adore," said. You know, I read the book. Why don't you write for adults? And I said, because I've got someone more important to write for than adults. <laughs>
3: That's <Quite weird>. right. <laughs> That's so beautiful. That's um, yeah, so moving because I think. I have struggled with the advocacy role um, because I came from journalism and you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're supposed to report on something, you know, objectivity, fairness, distance. They're all the principles, especially as an ex ABC reporter that's like drummed into <laughs> you. Um, and, but I felt like once I knew this stuff and once I'd spent like quite a long time, figuring out how to communicate it simply and as effectively as I could, that to just drop that book and run was not acceptable. And the number of people I feel loyal to who I've interviewed for the book, but since, you know, hundreds, countless people who've been in touch with me, I just can't leave it. I can't stop it. Um, parts of me want to. Sometimes I go to bed and I'm like, I can't get up and do this again in the morning. And then I get up and I'm like, let's go. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I wish that I had that. Real, like, I, th- I think I'm getting towards your sense of clarity around the drive and around the determination. I think there's a big part of me that's still resisting and is torn between two worlds. But I think my actions are, sp- are, are aligned with your words. My mind is is more divided But I I think it's moving much more in your direction. I take my hat off to you. I think it's just gorgeous.
2: Well, I think the work you do is incredible, important, invaluable... ...and it's why I have to write for young people... ...because the issues you write about are not dealt with. Mm. Absolutely. It's interesting. I think that um, if we get more
1: children reading... ...and nurturing from a very, very young age... um, ...then, and this is my absolute firm belief... If we teach them from a young age, hopefully, by the time they get to be adults, we won't have them mm. uh, where you will need to write about them in in a book. Uh, we won't get to that point. Um, tomorrow, schools across the country will be acknowledging Anti-Bullying Day, which of course coincides with Harmony Day celebrations. Do you think schools are working effectively to address these issues?
2: And if not, do you think what do you think could be done better?
3: You know more than. Me.
2: Well, I consider myself an anti-bullying survivor because my son was bullied and he really lost his will to live. And as far as I'm concerned, I've become a passionate advocate for it. And my background is, i um, a specialist in child growth and development ages ago, but it informs all my writing. I believe that bullying is a really important topic. It is being dealt with, but the problem is it's often dealt with in a didactic way. And when you start talking about bullying, the kids will give the answers you want, but they actually go out and then bash someone or bar them. So what's happening? The lack of emotional engagement. And really that's why I wrote my I Am Jack books, because when kids can place themselves in another person's shoes, they suddenly get it. Oh they don't really want to destroy another child if you ask them. They just don't have the what we call the emotional development yet. They need a concrete example. And certainly um I remember one little girl, one girl, she was about twelve, and she was crying, her mother told me and she'd read I Am Jack and she was crying and crying and this girl was a leader and never a bully in her life. And what was she crying about? She said, I walked past.
1: Yeah, mm. it's that taking the step.
2: And, you know, that yeah. can empower leaders for good because it's all about, you know, it's all very fine to talk to the group about this and that. Ultimately, there are always leaders in every age group. You need to emotionally engage them, empower them and, sorry to say this, the sheep will follow. So that's the goal. Ladies, we have to cut it
1: short. Um, I could sit here and actually talk to both of you all afternoon about these subjects. Can I just, uh, to anybody that's out there listening, can I highly recommend uh, these books to you? Heroes of the Secret Underground by Suzanne Gervais, See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. Um, Ladies, thank you so much for joining me here today. Mm. Extremely grateful to have you both in the room. I know Jess is heading off to a lunch Suzanne, you're heading off to a sliming for the room to oh, read. I'm yes. so jealous. Uh,
2: why didn't I get the sliming? It's, it's going to be green as well. So. <laughs> I leave you to the imagination. Uh,
1: <laughs> thank you again both so much thank for you. you. Thanks, thank we we you. Thank you.
0: If you would like to hear more from today's guests, you can find their latest books in All Good Retailers. Suzanne's latest book, launched at this year's festival, is titled Heroes of the Secret Underground. And for Jess, her landmark three-part series, See What You Made Me Do, is available now on SBS On Demand. We also thank festival director and CEO of StoryFest, Andrea Lewis, for being our guest host today.